Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Retro Book Club, Hood Classics, Good Classics. I'm Derek. I was thinking about doing this whole little intro thing where I acted like I had a British accent and was a waiter. And I brought over a menu and I was telling you about your choices. And I was like, we have Hood Classics and we have Good Classics. What would you like? But no. Plus, I just did it. On accident. Not in a British accent, though. <sighs> I give away too much. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter You can leave a review on Podchaser You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts You can leave a review on Stitcher I don't really give a fuck Just leave a review Let me know where you left it at You know, don't make me search Don't make this difficult for me Help me help you Help me by you leaving a review So anyway Y'all ready for a war? Because I left y'all at the precipice of a fucking war. I've read this book like so many times that my uh, hardbound copy is literally falling apart. And I got to this part and I was like, that's enough. Because it's showtime. And I'm building this up and I know it's probably not going to sing to y'all the way it sang to me. But the reason why is quite simply because I read it to myself and so I'm hoping that I can convey what's about to happen reading it to y'all. One thing I do know is that I can convey it better to you than that fucking punk-ass movie could with that bitch-ass Paul Walker. With no further ado, let's go. Chapter 38. By the way, we are exactly 50% done with this book. Chapter 38. Tim shoots the first guy the second he appears, like a green ghost in a night scope. Nosy hit him because the guy drops in that awkward way guys do when they take him around. Tim's shooting for the chest. It's the broadest part of the target. None of this shoot the wound crap tonight. Tonight, it's the real deal. Coughed you all over again. He hears a kid stir behind him. You stay in that hole. Tim orders. Voice like a sergeant. No bullshit. Because they're returning fire now. Tim hears the round smack like drum beats against a rock. One or two rounds come zooming in above his head. You stay in that hole. Tim repeats. Another figure dashes across his thin corridor of vision. And Tim squeezes off a round. 
Hears the air go out of the guy when he hits the ground. Tries to listen over the sound of his pounding heart. Adrenaline rush and all that happy crap. But it's important that he can hear them coming around the other side. Through the old back door. Sees another figure. Shoots and misses. Can hear them out there though. And they've hit the dirt. They have any brains? They'll crawl around the side. And take some snapshots around the edge of the split. He listens for footsteps. Doesn't hear any in front or in back. Then he hears the pistol shot. Shot? Hell, it's more like a fucking roar, echoing behind him in the narrow corridor of the rock. And he hears the guy yell, Oh shit! Like he's heard guys yell before when they're surprised that they're shot. Here we go, Tim thinks. It's the fucking Alamo now, and he crawls backwards out of his firing hole. Stay in that hole, he orders again as he belly crawls past Kit towards the back door. Sees a guy sitting against a rock wall. Can just make out the entry wound in the front of his chest. Doesn't want to see the exit wound. Not from a 9mm at that range. And the guy's just sitting there with that glazed look in his eye. And Tim yells, Medic! Out of sheer habit and doesn't even realize that he shouts it. Tim flicks a flame from the cigarette lighter and touches it to the line of gunpowder just as he hears his feet running towards the opening in the rock. Watches the spark crackle, and then the pile of brush ignites so bright it hurts his eyes. What's that? Kit yells. Keep down! Tim yells back. He doesn't hear any footsteps now. Isn't sure whether he could hear them through the fire's roar. So he takes a gamble at the guy to stop at the fire's edge. Flips the lever on the M16 the bush rake, and lets loose. Even through the fire, he can hear the pop-pop sounds around smacking in the bodies. Tim throws himself down. Good fucking idea, because rounds come winging back through the fire. Bullets and curses in Spanish, and Tim realizes that the take him alive order is probably forgotten now that the blood is up and people are dead. He remembers that a lot of orders get forgotten when a buddy or two's been hit, and the fear and adrenaline and rage are screaming like his is now. But he makes himself wait, and he crawls into the shallow trench he dug earlier, and reaches for the K-bar at his belt and gathers his knees under him. Guy comes leaping through the fire. Through the fucking fire. Shit, he's on fire. Little flames licking out his sleeve and on his hat. He looks like some sort of comic book villain. The human torture something as Tim lunges up with the knife in both hands. Push the blade into the guy's stomach, twists it sideways, straightens it, and then kicks the guy's body off the blade. Hits the dirt and listens. Tim decides to believe the backdoor attack is history. No choice anyway, because he can hear somebody coming in at the front. They must have brought an army, and Tim figures he's fucked anyway. Same old Tim Kearney, he thinks. Good at getting into places, fucking hopeless at getting out. He eases the rifle into the old supine firing position and looks through the scope. Sees another green ghost edging along the side of the rock wall. Not giving him much to shoot at, but enough. And Tim has just about applied the requisite pressure on the trigger when he hears something above him and looks up just in time to see a body hurtling down the split from the top of the rock. 
Motherfucker just dropping from the sky like some sort of berserk bat. Crazy motherfucker, Tim thinks as he tries to squeeze out of the way. But the crazy motherfucker lands square on him. Knocks the wind out of him. Tim can't fucking breathe and the rifle's pinned beneath him and so are his arms so he can't reach the K-bar. Feels a knife against the back of his neck. Guy's lying flat on him, trying to catch his own breath. But it's cool enough to get the knife to where it can make Tim a quad in about a second and a half. And this crazy motherfucker's so cool... He has a stone to say, Senor Z Pendejo, fuck. Then straightens up to get some leverage, which is like an error because the guy pinned against the wall is so wigged out he raises his gun. Rojas screams, No! But it's too late because that just startles the other guy who squeezes off his whole clip. Tim feels the weight fly off him. And the other green ghosts just stand there in shock with an empty gun. And he's still fumbling for that spare clip as Tim gets up and butt strokes him across the face. Now, the adrenaline's like singing in Tim. Kafji all over again. Like the night he won the cross. Like no impulse control whatsoever. And he pushes the guy against the rock wall. Strips him of his ammo and shit. What's this? Grenades? You should have used them, Tim thinks as he grabs the guy by the back of the neck and pushes him in front towards the opening. Pushes the guy out and another green ghost lets his buddy have it with a shotgun blast across the legs before he realizes it ain't Bobby Z. And he's standing there in the open when Tim puts a round in his face. Then it gets real quiet. Tim drops and crawls back to his firing hole in front of Kit. You okay? He asks the boy because he could hear the boy crying. I'm okay, Kit says. Brave little fucker, Tim thinks. You're a good Marine, Tim said. I didn't do anything. Exactly. If the kid had started jumping around screaming and shit, they'd both be dead. Lying there, covered up in that hole while the shit's flying and you don't know what the fuck's going on? That takes some serious stones. It's all like quiet, except that fire at the other end is blazing. A wall of fire, which is just what Tim intended, except they still have to get out of there, and Tim isn't so sure they could just go waltzing out the front door. Might be lawn sprinklers, he's thinking, just as he hears the cowboy holler. Looks like we got us another situation here, Mr. Z. Tim hauls the kid out of the hole and whispers, We gotta do something that's gonna be really hard. And we gotta do it now. You up for it? Little bastard just nods. Okay, Tim says. We gotta run as fast as we can through that fire. Can't do that. Got to. The kid shakes his head. Tim looks him in the eye. Yes, you can. He strips the kid's shirt off and puts it over his head. Then he takes a last of the water and pours it all over the kid. Then he says, We're going to run as fast as we can straight through that fire. And when we get through, you just keep on running. You keep on running into that brush over there and hide. I'll find you, I promise, in just a few minutes, Tim says. But just in case I get lost or something, you hide till morning. Then you walk into those hills. Get yourself on top of one and sit until someone finds you. You understand? 
understand. Ready? Ready. Let's make some noise first. Tim lets off a clip through the fire to soften up the darkness a little. Then they run. He holds Kit's hand as they run through the flames. Tim breathes again as he sees the boys made it through clean and he pushes them forward and yells, Run! Tim watches the boy make it into the brush and then takes a quick look around. Two KIAs and one about to be. Tim starts climbing the rock. Figures if that crazy motherfucker could do it, he can too. Slips a couple times and scrapes himself up pretty good, but holds on and makes it to the top. Looks down and sees a cowboy with three of his Indians picking their way through the debris at the bottom of the split. One of the Indians sees the body of one of his comrades and howls. Howls like a red wolf when he sees that the man is dead. Tim pulls the pin on the grenade and drops it down the split. Buries his head in his arms and hears a loud but dull thud. Hears the screams. He opens his eyes and sees a weird, eerie green glow from inside the rock. Like from a space alien movie, except this is from a phosphorus grenade. He eases his way down the rock and heads for the brush. Finds the boy huddled like a jackrabbit underneath some sage. Tim thinks he should say something but doesn't know what to say that won't make it worse for the boy. So he just says, Can you walk for a while? Kid asks, Can you? Let's get out of here, Tim says. I'm kind of sick of the desert. So am I. The moon comes up, and the desert's all silvery and quiet as they walk towards the hills. 916 633153. I'm just fucking with y'all. Chapter 39. By the time Johnson makes it back to the hacienda, it's mid morning and the sun is high. Sends the woman for their bought and paid for doctor in Ocotillo Wells, and the man shows up an hour later, more or less sober. Man stinks of vodka, but does a good enough job of picking fragments out of Johnson's arm and shoulder while the cowboy sits pulling on a bottle of tequila. The doctor's paid to keep his mouth shut, does his job, puts Johnson's broken right arm in a sling, gives him some pills and leaves, which is just fine with Johnson, who doesn't want any excess conversation anyway. Johnson's in an ornery mood. Took a goddamn army of Kawias to bag Bobby Z, and Bobby Z bags his army. Kills every damn one of them, except for him. As for Johnson... He's feeling blown up and bleeding and raw. And to add to that, he has an aggravation of having to deal with Brian. There's no use putting it off. So Johnson takes a long draw on the bottle. Ignores his Mexicana's entreaties to lay down. And hauls himself over to the main house to give fat Brian the cheerful news. Don Huertero's already there. Johnson doesn't see him. But sees his men stationed all around the house. Standing there all macho with their carbines and Mac-10 machine pistols and shit. Reflective sunglasses and those straw cowboy hats. And the head guy won't let Johnson go into the house. I just wanted to tell him that we didn't get Bobby Z, Johnson says in English. I think he knows, the honcho answers. And they all stand out there in the sun until Don Huertero and a few more boys come up with Brian. Naked as the day he was born. 
one big fat white blob of flesh, and he's crying like a baby as one of Huertero's bodyguards give him a boot in the ass and sends him sprawling into the dust. We didn't catch Bobby Z, Johnson says to him. Brian just looks up at him, all red-eyed and puffy, and Johnson can see he's been slapped around a little. Johnson's glad he had the tequila, because judging by the look on Huertero's face, it's probably the last tequila he's ever going to get, unless the next world's a whole lot different than those old Baptist preachers said it was. Old Huertero's standing in the shade of the porch, all cool in his white suit, ocean blue shirt, and $600 loafers. Blue wraparound shades, salt and pepper hair combed straight back, but not greasy looking like Johnson's used to seeing. He looks down at Johnson and says, So you tried to catch Bobby Z? Yes, sir. And what happened? He killed us, Johnson says. Most of us. The word Terrell nods, then says, He didn't kill you. No, Johnson says. Hortero nods again, then says, Yet. Johnson shrugs. And yet, you had him trapped, Hortero says. Johnson figures this is the moment he's about to get the drop. But there's nothing to do about it, so he just says, Thought I did. But Hortero smiles and says, Ah, well, I know the feeling. Mr. Zacharias is like starshine. You reach for him and... He trails off into some kind of reverie. Then his voice gets Hidalgo big and he announces, But Brian had him. A guest at a house. Brian had him and let him go. And that makes me wonder if Mr. Z did not offer Brian something more than he thought he could get from me. Brian's snuffling something that sounds like a denial. But Huertero's having none of it. How do I know the truth from Brian, who's an accomplished liar? Huertero asked the assembled crowd. Do I give him the same as I was going to give Bobby Z? Brian picks himself up and tries to run, but one of the honchos stops that with a gun butt to the stomach and Brian's left on all fours, gasping for air. Let's let Brian be out in the sun for a while, Huertero says pleasantly. Mr. Johnson, will you come into the house? Johnson doesn't know if he has much choice, so he follows Huertero into the big old Arab living room, where one of Brian's servants are already pouring the drug lord some coffee. Elizabeth's sitting in one of the big chairs. She's dressed in a green silk robe and hasn't brushed her hair or done her makeup, but she's still a handsome woman. Looks pale, though. Scared. Coffee? Huertero asks. Wouldn't mind. The maid trips all over herself, pouring Johnson some coffee with cream and sugar. Her hand shakes, and the cup rattles on the saucer. Somehow, Johnson finds it more unsettling than all of the last night's gunfire. It's pretty clear that Brian's old servants are not Huertero's new servants. And Johnson guesses that applies to him, too. Hope so, anyway. It's just as possible that Huertero's just going to kill him. Old bastard sits there in silence like he's just savoring the old richness of Juan Valdez. But Johnson knows that he's just letting the silence spook him. Well, fuck you, Don Huertero, Johnson thinks. You know what you get when you give a fool a couple hundred million dollars? A rich fool.
Hortero finally opens his mouth. Brian is a deeply stupid and degenerate man, he says. He believes that he can make an arrangement with Bobby Z and fool me. I must believe that such stupidity springs from the degenerate nature of his lifestyle. Well, Johnson thinks, if cornhole and Italian boys makes you stupid, Brian would be pretty near a moron by now. That's true. Wartero continues, but Brian gallantly seeks to cast the blame on Elizabeth. Brian tells me that Elizabeth warned Bobby of my plans for him. If that's true, as perhaps it is, then I can only tell Brian that he was negligent in sharing my plans with Elizabeth here, especially if he knew that she and Bobby were at one time lovers. If that is true, then both Brian and Elizabeth are at fault. Ward Terrell sets his cup and saucer on the side table and sharply orders Elizabeth, stand up. She gets out of the chair and Johnson sees a tremble pass over her body like a shadow across the desert. Turn around. Elizabeth turns her back to them. The robe. She shrugs her shoulders and the robe slides down her back. Johnson winces. The woman's back and butt are a raw terrain of welts and cuts. Ward Terrell calmly says, Brian is a deeply stupid young man who does not understand, cannot perhaps understand, the nature of this kind of woman. I know Elizabeth. You see, Mr. Johnson, she was an old friend of my late daughter's. Her best friend, perhaps. No. Elizabeth? I've known Elizabeth for years. She's been a frequent guest in my home. Elizabeth is warm, lovely, charming, intelligent, and lazy. She has the body of a courtesan. That is her blessing. She also has the soul of a courtesan, and that is her curse. What Brian fails to understand is that such a woman doesn't fear pain. Doesn't like pain, certainly. I'm not suggesting that, but doesn't fear it. She would not betray a love from fear of pain. Turn around. Johnson watched the woman turn to face them. Her voice is steady and cool as she asks, May I put my robe back on? Please. She doesn't hurry. In a slow, fluid motion, she reaches down, picks up the robe, and puts her arms through the sleeves. She winces slightly as the silk falls over her back. What such a woman fears, who Artero is saying, is disfigurement. Artero rises from the chair and steps over to her. Look at that face, he said. Beautiful. What such a woman fears is being ugly. He says. He takes his index finger and slowly runs it from her forehead to her chin. A deep scar from here to here, perhaps. With the blade of a dull knife, so no surgeon, however skillful, could. He forms his large hand into a fist, softly touching her face as he says. Or, perhaps her cheekbones smashed. Or her nose or the orbital bones of her eyes. Painful? Oh, yes. But that's not the fear that would cause her to betray a lover. No. 
Only the fear of disfigurement could do that. The fear of ugliness. Am I right, Elizabeth? Yes. Yes? Yes. Please sit down. They both take their chairs. What the man such as you is simpler, Huertero says. You want to live, yes? Yep. Huertero nods, then sits with his thoughts to himself, letting the silence get to them. Johnson doesn't like to admit it, but it works. He's about half spoot when Huertero starts to speak. So, for your betrayals and failures, I sentence you, nodding to Elizabeth, to disfigurement. And you, Mr. Johnson, to death. Johnson sees Elizabeth turn goddamn white and he ain't feeling so hot himself. But I suspend the sentence, Huertero says. Suspended sentence, shall we say. Aware that any time I want you, I need only reach out because the world's not big enough for you to hide in. On parole, shall we say, as an expression of mutual good faith. How do we get off parole, Johnson asks. Gruffly, rudely, because he's tired of this Mexican gentleman Hidalgo crap and his arm aches. Huartero feels the rudeness, but apparently doesn't care enough to have Johnson swatted like a fly. Simple, Huartero says. You bring me Bobby Z. <laughs> Simple, Johnson laughs. You bring me Bobby Z within, shall we say, 30 days? Huartero says. Or the sentences will be executed. Huertero smiles, gets up and walks out, just like that. Didn't know you were buddies with his daughter, Johnson says. Uh-huh. And she died? You heard the man. What happened? Elizabeth gathered the robe around her and got up. She killed herself, she said, and started to leave. What for? Johnson called after her. So she wouldn't be alive anymore, I guess. Johnson walked over to the bar and helped himself to a new bottle of Brian's tequila. Had a feeling Brian wouldn't be needing it anymore. Went out on the porch, sat down and put his feet up. They had old Brian lying naked in the sun, standing around him with those cute-ass machine pistols making sure he didn't get up. Old Brian lying there crying and blubbering, his skin already a rosy red. Every time he tried to cover himself, one of the boys would give him a kick to make him straighten out. They give him water too, a couple gulps now and then, because they didn't want him dying on them. That Mexico is a hard country, Johnson decides. Hour or so later, Don Huertero emerges from the house and sees Johnson. I don't know what Brian sees in that old film, Huertero says. I've just been watching it. It's lousy. I like that Gary Cooper, though. Yes, Gary Cooper's fine, Huertero admits. But the story? Kind of stupid. Very stupid. Brian just like that Arab shit, I guess. Do you think that getting drunk will help you find Bobby Z, Mr. Johnson? At this point, I don't suppose it'll hurt. 
Ward Terrell shouts some orders in Spanish, and the boys start scurrying around. A few minutes later, they back Brian's little Toyota four-wheeler up and chain Brian's ankles to the bumper. Ward Terrell stands over Brian. Brian's burned pretty raw. His face is swollen bad, Johnson sees, and almost the color of his red Brillo hair. I cannot tolerate a man who raises his hand to a woman, Ward Terrell says. Wait, didn't you just threaten to disfigure her like you were putting your fist to her cheekbone and her orbital bone and all that? So them was just threats? What if she said she didn't want to help find Bobby Z? Would they have just been threats then? Hypocrite. But most people in power are hypocrites, so it is what it is. And all of those dolores, you keeping holes in the ground. Huartero spits in Brian's face and yells another order. The Toyota takes off, and Johnson can see it racing out towards the brush to where the beaver tail and silver chola is. Johnson unfolds himself from his chair and starts to amble home. He wants to brew himself some coffee, pack his things, and locate Mr. Bobby Z before his 30 days are up. He takes a good look at the house as he walks away. Figures that life here is over. A damn Toyota, he muses as he shuffles through the dust. In the old days, they used horses. Chapter 40 Elizabeth sits, applying her makeup in front of the mirror. She can still feel the trace of Don Huertero's fingernail down her face. Can still feel the soft imprint of his knuckles on her cheek, nose, and eyes. She looks for a long time into the glass, then takes a red lipstick and draws a thin vertical line from her forehead to her chin. Stares at her image for several frozen minutes and thinks about herself, Olivia, and Angelica. What a trio. The three best buds. The masqueteers they called themselves. Playgirls. Then. Now. Herself a homeless whore. Olivia a rehab junkie. Angelica dead. Angelica. Who are Terrell's little angel. Gorgeous girl. Just fucking beautiful. High flying Angelica. But Bobby broke her wings. She had no experience falling, so she fell hard. Never learned how to roll, so she got hit hard. You fall with your arms wide open, Elizabeth thought. You land on your heart. The subsequent overdose was just a formality. The period to the sentence. Elizabeth washes the lipstick scar from her face, redoes her makeup, then eases into a soft denim blouse, jeans, and boots. Brushes her hair out and starts to pack. Although well-practiced at packing, she takes almost two hours to clear out the walk-in closet of her things. She has a lot of clothes, and anyway, it still hurts to move. She doesn't bother to ring for anyone to carry her bags down. All of the servants are gone, and the house is deathly quiet except for the drone of the television in her room. Some afternoon talk show. She doesn't even know which one it is, except that some trailer trash is screaming at some other trailer trash. For sleeping with her trailer trash husband. It's on her second trip out to the car that she sees Brian's body. Or maybe just Brian because it's possible he's still breathing. He's just lying there in the courtyard. Skin red and body grotesquely swollen. And he looks like he's been shot with a thousand miniature arrows. 
next time down, she takes a different route to the car. It's a red Mercedes. She puts the last bag in the trunk, sets the radio for some light jazz, and drives away. Keeps her head pointed in front of her, so only peripherally sees Don Huertero's men loading the illegals back into the trucks. For Lord knows where, she thinks. For Lord knows where. She stops on the main road and pulls the car over to look back. The black smoke mixes with the rosy gray sunset, fades into the blackness of the mountains beyond, then disappears into the darkening sky. Fire tops the walls of Brian's old Arab fort. The orange towers of flame shooting above the parapets reminds her of the Arabian doorways. Tear-shaped almost. Bogast, Brian, she thinks. Some funny joke, old pal. Chapter 41 Ten days later, Tim's pouring out the last of the corn pops into his and Kit's bowl while they watch the cartoon called Double Dragon, which Kit thinks blows, but Tim thinks is at least alright. No, Kit's right. That cartoon sucked. Like, that was a bad era of cartoons when they thought they could just take video games. They did that one and they did Sonic the Hedgehog, I believe, and tried to make them into, like, cartoons. But they also made Double Dragon into a movie. And Double Dragon into a movie, they should have just taken that script and shit and then wiped their ass with the script because that's all it was. If you really want to know, I did an episode for it on Hindsight. We did a bad video game movie month. Well, not a bad video game, but a bad video game movie month. We reviewed that. And The Legend of Chun-Li and Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Go look. If you're already on the Hindsight feed, just go back. There's a ton of great shit. Ton of it. Salt air, motherfuckers. Sing your face. They're living in the last cabin of eight cedar cabins gathered in a meadow on the western side of the Sunrise Highway on Mount Laguna. Mount Laguna is nowhere near. It has nothing to do with the town of Laguna or Laguna Beach. But it's still enough of an echo of Bobby Z to keep Tim focused on his main problem in life. Which is the fact that for all practical purposes, he is Bobby Z. And Don Huertero was terminally pissed at him. At least Mount Laguna is not a desert mountain. It has real fucking trees for one thing. Big tall pinyons cedars, hemlocks, and even oaks, shade trees, and the knotty pine cabins at 57 bucks a week off-season, the price is right. Sit just off the road flanked by a stand of giant pines. It's cheap, quiet, and private, and the owner doesn't ask a lot of questions, even if he does notice that the customer's shirt is stained with dry blood. Doesn't matter as long as he pays. Also, there's no other guests in the other seven cabins, which Tim really likes, so even though it's kind of a toilet, it's about perfect for him to sit for a while and figure out what to do. And it's like kid heaven for kid, who's just out of his skull to be around a man for a change and is really into the just us guys thing, and gets to eat as much junk as Tim can buy for the general store about a mile up the hill. So it's been corn pops, Pepsi, chocolate milk, hot dogs, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Hormel chili, denty more beef stew, and stacks of frozen pizza, and all the television he wants to watch. That kid's constipated. The kid's into it. He's also into the spy thing. The spy thing is Tim's version of hide-and-go-seek. We're playing spies now, 
he informs Kit after first getting the key from Macy, the old man who owns the motel. How do you play spies? Kit asks. First of all, we need different names. Why? You can't be a spy and have your own name, Tim tells him. Everyone will know who you are and then you can't spy. Kit thinks it over and asks, What's your name going to be? Tim pretends to think and then says, How about Tim? Good. Who are you going to be? Mike. Mike? Mike. Mike's good. I like that, Tim says. Now the game is that the bad spies are after us, and we're hiding until... Until what? Until we can find where the secret formula is hidden. Is that our cabin, Tim? Yes, Mike. Can I open the door? How come? Just want to. You know how to use a key? I'm six. Okay with me. So Kit runs ahead to the cabin, throws open the screen door, and struggles with the key until he pushes it open. Tim doesn't get it that six-year-olds are just crazy about doing that kind of thing, but it's okay with him. The cabin's small. There's a kitchen counter with a small stove and an oven, a sitting area with a ratty old couch and a rocking chair, and a bedroom with bunks in it. The bathroom's big enough to turn around in and has a shower but no bath. Place has a TV though, and it has Bobby, which is about all Kit cares about, so he's happy. And if he has a bloody night in the desert on his mind, he doesn't say anything about it. And it sure isn't affecting his appetite any the way he puts down pizza and ice cream. After about a week, Tim's getting tired of hiking back and forth from the general store with groceries, and also figures he's going to need transportation to find out the next step of being Bobby Z. So he decides to get a car. His first thought is to steal one, of course. Hang out by the gas pumps at the general store until some citizen leaves the key in the ignition while they're inside buying their beef jerky. But then he thinks better of it. It's a small town. Shit. The general store is a town. That and a biker bar across the road. And the victim is sure to see their car parked at the Naughty Pine Motel. And the last thing Tim needs to do is wind up back in the system where Garuza and the Aryan Brotherhood will be happy to greet him. And then there's the kid. What's going to happen to the kid if I get nailed, Tim wonders. So he goes against his better nature and decides he better just buy some old heap. And there is an old heap. A plug-ugly lime green Dodge. Been parked in the gravel parking lot since they've been there. So Tim tells Kit to finish watching the cartoon and he'll be back in a few minutes. Tim goes to the cabin that serves as an office and says hello to the owner. Macy grunts a hello back and returns to reading the Star newspaper. That old Dodge, Tim starts. Yeah. Been parked out there a while, Tim says. You know who it belongs to? Yeah. Who? Me. Fucking old coot, Tim thinks. Has to make this hard. I'm looking for a vehicle myself, Tim says. Old bastard looks up from his paper and says, 900. I don't want it bronzed, Tim says. I'll take it as is. I'll give you five. You won't give me five, the old guy says. 
sits for a minute, then says, I'd take 850. Yeah, I bet you would. Tim stands for a minute while the guy finishes his article. When he looks up again, he doesn't seem all that thrilled that Tim is still there. Tim says, I'll give you six. Man thinks about it for a while and says, I won't take a check. I was thinking of cash. Tim doesn't like saying it and doesn't like the look in the guy's eye. Old man running an out-of-the-way dive has a wonder why white trash would have that much cash on him. Wonders where he got it and probably wonders what kind of a reward there is on a poor man carrying that kind of cash. But it can't be helped, Tim thinks. We need a car. Go get the cash. I'll go get the keys, the old man says. Tim reached into his pants pockets and pulled out six bills. I'll go get the keys, the old man says. He goes into the back room and returns a minute later and tosses the keys on the counter. Pink slips in it. You're not checking out, are you? Not yet. Tim's halfway out the door when the old man asks, You need anything else? Like what? Like a gun. Tim doesn't tell him that he already has a gun. Thanks. Tim left the M16 smashed up under a rock as he came out of the desert. On the theory that even in Southern California, it's hard to hitchhike with an automatic rifle slung over your shoulder. But the pistol, even now, is tucked inside the waistband of his jeans. Why would I want a gun? Tim asks. The old man shrugs. Protection. That's what the old geezer says, Tim thinks. But what he means to do is sell Tim a gun so Tim can go rob something else. Long as it's not him, the old man doesn't give a shit. Long as it pays the rent. I always have a piece handy for protection, the old man asks. Making sure Tim knows it's not okay to rob him. Nobody robs their hideout, Tim thinks with disdain. Even asshole Wayne LaPerrier wouldn't be asshole enough to rob his own hideout. I think the car's enough, thanks, Tim says. He goes outside, climbs into the driver's seat, and is nicely surprised when the heap starts up first turn of the key. He calls Kit outside to help him check the brake lights, tail lights, and turn signals, then double checks the registration sticker and emission control sticker. Tim does not want to get pulled over for something stupid, especially as he doesn't have a driver's license. Kit's way juiced about the car. Is this a spy car? He asks. Don't say it so loud. Sorry. But there's a grin all over the kid's face and Tim decides that the boy leads a rich fantasy life. Let's take her for a spin, Tim says. We need groceries. They go up to the general store to lay in a fresh supply of junk. Tim decides he needs another week or so of quiet to decide just what the hell to do next. Also figures it'll be time to move on soon, before the old man finds a buyer to sell him to. Tim's thinking these weighty matters over as he and Kit put the groceries in the car. Problem is, Tim's been out of the joint just long enough to let his paranoia get rusty, so he doesn't notice the biker across the road giving him just that extra second glance. In all fairness to Tim, it's cold up on the mountain. There's still patches of snow on the ground, and the guy's got an Australian herder's coat on over his colors. The biker notices him, though, 
although he has a chew on it halfway back to El Cajon before it hits where he knows this guy from. The kid throw him off at first, but then he remembers he has an image of Tim on the yard in San Quentin. And because it never hurts to do a good one for the brothers in L.A., he calls one of the clubs up there, and a couple hours later, that ugly prick Boom Boom calls him back. Yeah? Boom Boom says, like he's pissed off he's been taken away from something more important. Guess who I saw earlier today? Who? Like, real bored-like. Tim Kearney, the biker says. Then Boom Boom gets a lot more interested. Chatty, almost. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Leave a review on Podchaser. Uh, you can leave a review for the episode or for the show overall. Um, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher Radio. You can help us buy books at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash single simulcast. Yeah. Yeah. I love this book. Once you get past the racism, which I didn't even notice at first, but now you'll never know where it is unless you buy a book. And if you buy the book, uh, just click on the link in the show notes. It'll take you to it. Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. <laughs>